Hello and welcome. I am your host, Mr. Christopher, and in this episode of the Funkatopia podcast, we sit down with Mr. Brent Fisher. And while his name may not seem familiar to you, you probably are familiar with his father, Claire Fisher, who was pretty much single-handedly responsible for most of the string arrangements and orchestration that happen on every single album of Prince's beginning with Parade and moving forward. And just some fantastic stories. And Brent's involvement is that Brent was the person who took all of those songs that Prince would give to his father, Claire, and he would break them all down note by note and set up the scores and separate them out by instruments. And he just, he was pretty much responsible for most of the hardcore legwork that was involved in documenting all of the notations for Prince's music, which then he would then give to his father and his father would put string arrangements based on the notes that his son had put down. And it was just a symbiotic relationship that really helped Prince to create those otherworldly dimensions, all with the help of some fantastic string arrangements and orchestrations by the son and father Fisher duo. And it was my honor to be able to sit down with Mr. Brent Fisher for a good chunk of time and talk about some fantastic stories involving Prince and his father. And here we are in this funk podcast with Mr. Brent Fisher. It's Mr. Christopher with the Funkatopia Radio Show, and it is my honor to have the one and only Brent Fisher. For those of you who don't know who Brent is, he's the son of the legendary Claire Fisher, but his involvement with Prince and go down the line, Michael Jackson and Al Jarreau and Usher and all the people that he's worked with is, is his resume is plenty fine. <laughs> um, so uh, we were talking a little bit about, um, and one of the things I wanted to, to first off, welcome. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you very much. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, how you got um, involved in, in I knew that you had an interest in uh, playing music. You, your first love, I guess, was bass guitar, if I remember correctly. And um, how did you get involved in what you do now, which is pretty much you know, doing the arrangements and orchestration for, for various artists around the world? How did, right. you, how did that process start? It was, it was a very gradual process uh, for me because I just started out as a musician. I was surrounded by music from birth because of my father. You know, right. my, some of my earliest memories are of laying underneath his grand piano um, with the family dog, you know, just sort of I was two years old or something like that, just listening to him either practice or write or, uh, you know, play through, rehearse, things like that. So it was, uh, it was some of my earliest memories and I I envy those people who discover music independently because mm-hmm. I was just surrounded by it from birth and uh, and I think that's quite interesting people who discover music on their own and then they get into it as a career later on for me it was basically just you know all my father's friends were musicians so I figured that's what everybody did so as I grew up I just figured okay when I when I get older I'm going to be a musician <laughs> 
<laughs> so I feel like growing up in Neville Brothers or something. It's like yeah. you know what's going to happen. It's just like whatever. I, I go with it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I didn't go to career fair at high school or anything like that because I basically I already had a career. I uh, I started playing drums when I was about five years old. Uh, then I switched over to electric bass at fourteen. Picked up keyboards, and um, and then I uh, I went to uh, university and got a degree in symphonic percussion but I paid for that degree by gigging on electric bass because I you know I had the two the two things going on concurrently and uh, and that's when I started getting ideas about writing music I think my father always knew that I would be a writer because he 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 was always spurring me you know do something here write something for this or you know, get get your own band going and and write for them, and uh, and actually, when it was later on, let's say I think towards the end of my college days, and he saw my development, he told me, you know, if you will learn what I do and how I write music, I would in a sense become immortal if you would carry on my traditions. Wow, and it, that was <laughs> pretty. That was pretty heavy to lay on. Oh, that, that was the exact word I was going to use. You know, I was probably eighteen or nineteen years right. old at the time. It, it it's it definitely sunk in because I had I had you know immense respect for him. My dad took me on tour when he went on tour with Cal Jader or uh, you know other artists when he was you know when I was a kid, mm. and then when I uh, actually I mean going back to even. Uh, very early days, five, six years old, when you know, when he was sure that I understood that when the red light goes on in a recording studio, you don't make a single noise. Um, he took me. He started taking me to sessions with him. So I watched him do all these sessions with these great session players in the '70s, uh, actually late '60s, early '70s, and you know, recording for movies and TV shows and all the things that he did. Uh, and so that was, you know, that was a great, um, that was a great introduction to the music industry for me. But but then my professional career actually started when I was 15, and he, uh, it, it just worked out that the bass player that was currently in his Latin jazz group, um, which which would go on to you know win Grammy awards and everything. Do, I mean, it con continues to this day. The I'm, I'm I'm the director of the Claire Fisher Latin Jazz Group, the Claire Fisher Big Band. All the Claire Fisher ensembles continue to this day. Fantastic albums, yeah. Thank you. And uh, but but at that time, I was uh, I was 15 years old, and uh, my father had seen my you know my development as a bass player, and uh, and felt comfortable taking me into the group because his, his current bass player at that time uh, had, had decided to leave to pursue other ventures. And the other thing that he really liked about having me in the group was he could tell me exactly what he wanted me to do and I would just do it. <laughs> because I had to, because I was his son. It's not like working with another musician where they say, oh, you know, I got a creative difference with you here. I think I should play it this way instead. And he, you know, he didn't want that. He had a clear vision of how he wanted the music to sound, and 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 I'm the same way too. Actually, mm -hmm. when I you know on my own sessions, I I know what I want, and I know who to hire and how to get what I need out of them, and and I know what their strengths and weaknesses are, so that I can write specifically for them and bring you know ha have this grand experience of bringing the music to life 
through a combination of my writing skills and producing skills and their instrumental talents or vocal talents if I'm working with vocalists. So, uh, but but getting back to getting back to those those early years. So I, I joined uh, the Claire Fisher Latin Jazz Group when I was 15 in 1980, and then we recorded an album that year at uh, Capitol Studios, and it won a Grammy in 1981. So that was a great way to start my career. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> best that's Latin a good jazz recording. Can't can't complain there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so uh, then you know I, I, I went to college. And I was, uh, you know, just busy with studies in college, and, and I mean, that was that was a great awakening for me too, because I had been surrounded by music all my life, but to hack, you know, to to actually uh, be required in college to become completely proficient in the piano, to be able to sight read at the piano, and and, and not that I was going to go and become a keyboard player, um, but but just to have it as a tool for writing music. And then to uh, you know take a conducting class. I had no idea when I was that age, you know, 19 or 20 years old, that I would be standing in front of an orchestra very soon after that, um, conducting them. And and I mean, the first time actually was on a Prince session, around '86, uh, when Dad said, you know, I I want to go into the control room and see how this sounds in the control room. So you just conduct the orchestra. And that, I was completely unprepared for that. You know, young kid standing in front of 50 seasoned veteran, you know, orchestral musicians and started waving my hands around. But I, you know, he, he told me, I want you to cue this here and I want you to cue that there. I mean, that's, that's one of the main jobs of a conductor is to provide confirmation for the players that they've counted their bars of rest carefully and you are in fact bringing them in at the right time you, you guys are all agreeing where they're supposed to enter and so it just gives them a confidence to uh, you know to, to make that much were you familiar with all the hand movements and everything yeah so you already had a, a yeah. little bit of a grasp of that though right right because I you know I had taken a conducting class at, at college and yeah. you know I'm not a, a graceful uh, conductor by any means but I can elicit a, a, a performance out of a musician, I can elicit emotion out of a musician, and I can also direct how things are going. And and uh, that you know that's that's the main thing is to is to increase the amount of emotional content that you can deliver to a music. And I mean that's one of the the main jobs of orchestral music, anyways, because especially as it relates to pop, funk, R and B rock music is is because you are adding another element which you know much of the time does not exist there but it's a it's a beautiful element for really bringing out the emotion in the song um, I've sort you know I've sort of disagreed over the years with those artists who feel like uh, strings or or woodwinds are only for using on a lush ballad or something like that I, I love you know I, I did this I did this album for uh, Elvis Costello with Questlove and the uh, Roots. Rise of uh, Ghost, yeah. Yeah, and you know, we, we were doing all this funky stuff, and it was, you know, it was, it was great to be able to dig into this with uh, string players and brass and woodwinds. And, uh, and so, so, you know, I love doing all of that, but, you know, a lot of people sort of associate orchestral music with kind of lush ballads, and so that's been kind of the hallmark of what has uh, set the stage for, for a lot of Claire Fisher's arrangements and then later on my arrangements. And, uh, and so, so when we were back here at the beginning, um, 
I had no idea of how this was going to unfold, but I, I was just, you know, clear in the fact that I knew I could, I knew I could uh, rise to the occasion of whatever was expected, expected of me. And I didn't quite know where that would come along, but I knew that you have to be ready for just about anything that happens in the music industry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not just a, a, the ability to sort of be in the right place at the right time and somebody says, I've got a job for you here, can you do it? But then you have to actually be able to do it and and get on. Uh, so, so I'm joking, you know, I was, yeah, I was thrown up there in front of an orchestra and asked to just start waving my hands around. But... <laughs> I put my all into that, and you know, beginning conductor, we got it done. Yeah, <laughs> and then he, you know, <laughs> That's he, all that he got what he needed to in the control room. He came back out. He made some adjustments to some of the orchestral parts, and they went on and did a couple of great takes, and we sent it off to Prince. So that was that was no problem. Um, and and the reason, the reason why I started working with Prince, um, at, fir- at first as my father's assistant was after he'd done the family album in 84 or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, he, you know, he got the call from Prince's office that there was going to be another movie under the cherry moon and, uh, well actually we didn't have titles of anything, and then there was going to be another album which turned out to be Parade. Uh, the only thing we had from him was a cassette tape that was delivered to us with the title The Marx Brothers Project. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was, I guess, the code name for under the, the cherry moon, or yeah, for for parade. you know, sort of under the cherry moon slash parade, right? And um, and so, Dad looked at me and he said, you know, every time I've done an arrangement for people in the past, like Rufus Santana, Pebo Bryson, you know, Atlantic Star, all those all those great groups that he arranged for, um, in the late seventies, early eighties, you know, he always had to transcribe. A cassette tape of what they you know they sent him their tracks that they had recorded and they say add add orchestra onto this and uh, so he had to write down what they were playing so that he could have a written out chart to use for the basis of what he was going to write onto the score pages right and so that was something that that um, you know he didn't he didn't like doing transcribing is a difficult job you have to sit there and listen you have to work out at the piano what they're doing so you have to play you know you have to play the same section over and over again first to identify what's going on in the keyboard part then identify what the bass player is playing what the guitarist is playing you have to identify things one by one as you hear them and it's a it's a you know it's a skill that is um, you know hearing is one of the least developed senses right we we uh, we go into a, a restaurant somewhere, and you know we can recognize the smells. We look around the room, we recognize you know there's a brown wall and there's a you know white napkin there. We, we recognize the colors. We recognize the the sensory uh, things that we touch as we sit at the table and the taste of the food, right? But but how many people can sit there and listen to the music in, in the restaurant and say, well, I hear a B-flat major 7 chord with a raised 11th, and uh, we've got uh, two trumpets, trombones, sax, two guitars, a keyboardist, and the singer is, um, you know, got, got two background vocalists, and, and, and identify all those sorts of things. And so, you know, I picked up the ability to do that very early as a child because I wanted to learn what was going on in all the music that I was listening to. And uh, and I and I basically taught myself to play bass by 
transcribing bass lines off of albums and then I started getting interested in what the guitarists were playing and what the keyboardists were playing and so I started writing out everything that I was hearing because I figured it was this is all you know a lesson in how people put music together not realizing at the time how valuable that would uh, that skill would come in and how handy that skill would come in and my dad all of a sudden told me um, you know, I want you to I want you to transcribe all of this Prince music for me, so I don't have to do it myself. So I can just concentrate. You know, as you after you hand me the first transcription, I'm going to start writing the first arrangement, and then while you're working on the second one, I can be working on the first arrangement. So we can have a very efficient working plan this way. And I you know I didn't realize how amazing this uh, working relationship would come uh, you know come to later on because uh, you know as I as we got going, as I finished each transcription, we'd listen to the tape and I, you know, he'd read along on the transcription and I'd talk to him about, you know, what's going on here in the guitar solo, what's, what's going on in the, you know, with this drum fill right here, um, or, you know, the groove is laying back here, so you're going to have to, you know, adjust the, um, the timing of the string players. In, in, some, in some cases, you're, you know, he, he would need to actually think of different ways how are we going to write out you know something that's a double funk shuffle right which is basically <laughs> you can't write it out in 20 in you can't write it out in 4/4 four, four for string chords i don't know if i'm getting too technical now but no, that's fine. it'll yeah, just be right. for a second so anyway you you can't write out a double funk shuffle in 4/4 four, four for string players because they won't read it properly it's actually it, it's it's like straight eighth notes but swung 16th so it's like triplety 16th so a lot of that stuff we had to write out in 2416. So what that is is you know each each beat of the four beats in the bar is divided into six sections. Four times six equals 24. So um, so you know there were a lot of uh, intricate math that we had to go through basically to you know to figure out the best way that we could convey to the orchestral players these uh, funky grooves that we were dealing with here, and and so. Basically, each time I would finish a transcription, we'd listen to the song, I would consult with my dad on you know, the intricacies and the subtleties of the performance, all the different nuances that were going on, and, uh, and then he would start writing and um, you know, bounce ideas off me, and sometimes it would give me an idea, and I'd say, hey, dad, what about this? You know, and he'd listen to it, and uh, sometimes he'd use my idea, and, and when it got to the point where I was actually contributing a major idea for the arrangement then he decided to start making me a co-writer at some point later on you know this was maybe I don't know it, well it was a very gradual process happening over you know five to ten years there were a lot of projects there was always something going on and, and so we weren't really thinking about you know the um, sort of the historical component of what we were engaged in at the time because you're just busy you're just doing it you, you know like you realize what you know how big that Prince would become. I think you knew. Oh, I knew he was. He, he was, was he big was already. Yeah, yeah, he was already big. Purple Rain. Yeah. But I, I don't think that you know. Some so many people attain this. You know, this largeness, and then over time they start fading away. But Prince never faded away. I mean, just kept on going for decades and decades. And, and, and just and, kind of figure out exactly how that progression is gonna is gonna work. But what I find interesting is that what you said 
when you hear a song, you can kind of hear all the different pieces, and you can you you you. It's kind of like a puzzle that you can't turn off in your head. It's like the second you hear a song, you're like, oh, that that's interesting. What's the well, first? Well, I, I can turn off analyzing a tune when I need to. <laughs> oh, what's the first song you ever heard, Prince or otherwise, that you maybe heard on the radio, or or maybe that was put in front of you that that you listened to it and you were like, this this is maddening. How, how am I gonna? I don't even know where to even start with this song as far as documenting. Is there, is there a specific song that stands out in your mind that go, oh my God. I, I, yeah, sure. I, I've either A, got to get to the bottom of this and figure it out because this is just a challenge. Or yeah. So <laughs> there's got to be that song. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there, are, there are actually quite a few of them. An early one was Freehand by Gentle Giant. That was a big hit in like, I don't know, 1978, 1979. I was listening to that. It's a, that was, you know, a very interesting sonic architecture, the way that all laid out. And then, uh, you know, there were all these things that, that happened with, uh, oh, I don't know, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and, yeah, and you know, the horn awesome. lines and Earth, Wind, and Fire, and, and the, the guitar riffs, and, and just the chord progressions that they would come up with, which were, you know, very, very um, unusual and clever and well put together. Um, you know, I, I think I was like, one of I don't know 20 million people that figured out what the guitarist was doing for his solo on Hotel California and <laughs> <laughs> not that I ever played it on guitar that's the one instrument I do not play yeah. uh, although I do sit down with a guitar when I need to figure out a fingering or something if I'm writing for a guitarist I'll, I'll you know sit down with the guitar for a second I can I can play each one of these instruments but it's a question of what I want to perform on one of them not necessarily um, so, uh, so you know, there were a lot of things like that that, that happened to sort of, uh, you know, pique my curiosity when I was growing up. And um, Any Prince song that sticks out? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, well, I was uh, basically my introduction to Prince, besides what my dad did on The Family, was Purple Rain. When he was, uh, you know, all the, all the beginning part of his career, I was still pretty young. And, um, you know, kind of just... Um, in the moment with my dad's music and going to a lot of his sessions and at that you know that point right then 14 15 years of age starting to learn you know the, the Clary Fisher library of music so I could play bass in his group uh, that was you know that was sort of all-consuming for a while there and plus you know being in high school and and college uh, academically I was you know that took a lot of time I was I was a good student I didn't go out and party all the time I was hitting the books I partied a little bit, but I, <laughs> I was hitting the books most of the time, and uh, and so that uh, so, so that was you know like my real introduction to Prince was Purple Rain, and um, and then I went back and you know listened to all the other stuff, and but I mean there there were a lot of groups like that that I discovered later on that you know were happening, and I mean I discovered the Beatles when I was like. 17 or 18. I mean, I'd always heard them on the radio, but then yeah. uh, at, at, at some point they, they started reissuing all the LPs. They made you right. know, new issues of the LPs in late 70s, early 80s. And at that point, I kind of discovered them as, you know, let's say, a, a, you know, a conscious person who could um, start to analyze and break down what they were doing and really, you know, look at it deeply. And so, uh, so you know, yeah, because when you're growing up, you just sort of listen to whatever's on the radio, and you don't necessarily um, learn everybody's name. And I, I mean, oh, yeah. some people did, some people did, and some people didn't. I, you know, I, 
I, uh, I, w I was kind of interested in what my dad was doing as a child, and so I was, I was just, you know, kind of enjoying going all to the, you know, to, to all of the performances that he did and going to jazz festivals with him and, uh, and, th and then, you know, watching him conduct uh, string dates for Santana or, or Rufus or any of the people that, you know, he worked with during those early days. But, um, but so this, this gradual process that we then went through later on when I was in my 20s ended up basically making me the person who I am today in that um, it started out very organically. You know, I didn't, I didn't like set out to say I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be an orchestral arranger one day. That's, it just kind of <laughs> developed organically. And, uh, it, you know, whatever, whatever came along in the music industry, like I said, that I had to step up to take care of, I learned how to do it right then and there. So when I saw that my dad was having uh, issues with the, the uh, orchestra manager who was, you know, hiring, he was responsible for hiring all the musicians in the orchestra. And... Um, and, and I, you know, I, I started, because I have a critical ear, I started walking around uh, the, the, uh, the studio while we were recording and uh, listening to players and identifying who were the really gifted players and who were the guys that were just kind of there for a gig, you know, because it was another gig that day. And, and mm -hmm. especially, the, especially the, the, the thing to me that I wanted to, uh, you know, talk to my dad about weeding out were any people who were like kind of, you know, I hate to use the term snob, but, but there are certain people who really, they, they like one style of music. And if, if, you, if you listen to another style of music, you are, you know, you're you're not important to that person because <laughs> exactly, yeah. because you you don't know what real music is and for me it's never really been about genre it's about creativity and so and and, and you know this came in very very uh, handy for all the different groups that I've worked with over the years to you know to be able to switch from uh, working on a project with uh, George Duke or or somebody like that to going and working with Robert Palmer. Or, or D'Angelo or anybody that yeah, that's yeah, really like Prince. You couldn't even you couldn't even pigeonhole him. Well, and he was all these genres too, right? You exactly. Know. So the second that you try to pigeonhole him as a funk artist, that he would go and do something like Third Eye Girl and do rock, or you try to pigeonhole him as a rock artist, which was always kind of difficult. I I, I don't think he ever. I think rock was the one, um, or hard rock. I think was the one, and rap. So there was a couple genres that I think that he tried to get into mm -hmm. a little bit. That yeah. he, he felt like, I, I feel like I need to accomplish this. I need to do a hip-hop album or I need to do a hard rock album. But I just kind of felt like he was, while he could pull it off and it was fantastic, he still never really, you know, did a, a fantastic job at, at being able to really, really, really pull it off. But he was a master of... So many different, uh, so many different genres. So I, I guess you know that works perfectly for a gentleman like yourself, where you are actively involved with you know anything that any direction that he wants to go. You, you have the capability to be able to you know pull it off. And that's, and that was, that's 
that was a great thing about working with him for all these years is he never repeated himself. There were so many different things that he handed to us. And, uh, you know, it's like a pleasure to, uh, to call into Paisley Park Studios to speak to one of his assistants or his engineers when we, you know, had a, any sort of uh, issue to dis discuss. Because, you know, when they put you on hold, you got to listen to all these great Prince <laughs> tunes, you know, all the other stuff that, uh, that we weren't working on. Um, you know, I, I mean, one of, the, one of the interesting things that happens to you when you get really busy in the music industry is you really just have time to listen to the music that you're working on. And, you know, people will come up to me and say, did you hear this great song on the radio? Or what? I'm like, no, I'm sorry, I didn't. But let me hear it, you know. And, and, uh, and thanks, thanks for turning me on to it because I've been, you know, kind of uh, locked, in the, uh, locked in the music room <laughs> for the last 20 days. And I've just been kind of living and breathing what I'm working on right, right now. So, um, well, so Prince gave you a lot of stuff. And, and you had mentioned uh, at the, the celebration, you had mentioned it just dawned on you that you were getting early access to all this Prince music. Yeah before anybody got an opportunity to ever hear it. Was there any, this is actually a twofold question actually, we'll sure. get to the second part, but the first thing is, there was uh, the song I Know off of the Love Sexy album, there was, um, I can't remember how I ended up getting a hold of it, but somebody had sent me a, a bunch of varieties of versions that your father had done for that song like a lot of different there was a lot of different orchestration that happened in the beginning of that song where all that weirdness is going on and um and there was like different versions of things that he had he had done so I, what i found unusual was that none of it was used and they use they did use one but in in the scheme of them using that one there were another half a dozen or so that were just kind of thrown to the wayside or he just decided not to use it or use pieces of it. Was there anything that you had done or that you were involved in that you were really, really proud of that Prince just didn't use or you think, gosh, I wish they would have released that song. I can't believe that one's sitting in the vault or I can't sure. believe. So how many of those are, what's, what's, the, what's the, one, the one that's the most painstaking for you that you know it exists and you're like, oh my gosh, I wish that he would release that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that was, that is actually another great thing that um, happened in the, in the working relationship with Prince was, uh, well, basically, you know, when, when it comes down to working with other artists, um, there are, you know, there are different, a lot of different ways you can do that. My father was not a collaborator. His, his idea was that, or his philosophy was that you are hiring me to create my art, so um, give me your song, give me any instructions you like at the beginning, and then leave me to create my art, and then I will send you the orchestral arrangement finished when it's done, and you can use it or not use it, and, and that's, that's your choice, but uh, don't ask me to change anything. Whereas I'm more of a collaborator, and um, I, I mean, I, I actually get that, I do get that a lot from artists when they say, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to tell you too much because I want to see what you're going to do with this. I want to see how you can, you know, turn it upside down or whatever. So I, I don't want to give you too many instructions. But then there are other people that, 
you know, want to be there on the session and they want to ask, can we try this, can we try that? And, and, uh, and, and so, you know, I don't have any problem doing that. But, but uh, what, what worked out so well with, with Prince and my father was Prince was absolutely accepting of that kind of philosophy. I mean, it was kind of unspoken that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't think they ever had any big conversations on the phone about it, you know, because there weren't that many phone conversations, but it was just kind of understood. Prince was going to send us what he did in as final form as he could get it without the orchestra being there and then we were going to add orchestra on and send it back and there were uh, you know multiple takes for him to listen to but there weren't a lot of dramatic changes because and that just that just really has to do with the way my father and I write Uh, you know we he raised me to be kind of the same way that he is and in other words when I when I go into the studio, I know exactly what I want out of the players, and I know exactly how to get it from them. And I'm very clear in my creative vision. There's not any thought in my head that, well, I, let's try this. I'm not sure about that. Let's, you know, I've thought all that stuff through, and that's why I always ask people to give me some time when they send me a tune. Don't ask me to just crank it out in two days. I, I like to, you know, spend a good four days to a week on an arrangement so that I can really think about all these things and, and also uh, you know a great part of producing an orchestral arrangement I, I think is to, is to be prepared for any eventuality in the studio you've got to have contingency plans in case something um, something doesn't balance right once you actually get into the studio and the more you know the more you write the less chance of something not sounding the way you actually envisioned it um, happens in the studio, but still, it's good to have contingency plans in the studio, especially if there's an artist that's going to be attending the session, and he doesn't, you know, you, you don't know what the how the situation is going to unfold if he's going to ask for a lot of changes or not. Um, but but getting back to getting back to the uh, sort of the Prince Claire Fisher philosophy was uh, that that was it. You know, Prince would send it to my father, and uh, and he was so busy doing his thing and my dad was busy doing his thing that you know there really wasn't any communication after the work was finished we would get the tracks add orchestra and send it back and then we'd have no communication very very infrequently there would be you know like a really nice thank you message or a thank you note or a thank you from one of the, his his assistants later on there was you know emails that were sent to us by his assistants um, so so, uh, you know, and, and it wasn't expected either. We weren't, you know, we weren't looking for praise or anything like that. We, right. we, were, we were sure about what we were doing, so we, we felt good about it. On the other hand, you know, there can be a time when as a producer you sit and you listen to all this stuff and you think, well, you know, I've gotten used to the way it sounds without the orchestra, so I think I'm just going to go with it or whatever decision was going into his head that made him decide not to use it at that point sometimes he would take those orchestral tracks and put them onto other songs as sort of incidental chaos in the background to uh you know to help to help uh, define a point that he was making with that particular song and uh, and so these things you know the, the way they unfold i mean there were there were no really hard feelings or anything like that if, if an arrangement wasn't used that's just the the way that it went and it wasn't seen you know it wasn't seen necessarily as a rejection of 
you know, what my father had done or anything like that. It was, it was just like a, a decision. But, well, what's best for the music? You know, what's, right. what's best for the song? Um, or like, and the like, overall flow and vision and theme of what he has going on. Yeah, you know, like it kind of contrasted with that too much. Then, yeah. No, well, I, and don't forget, it. while you know, while the uh, while the orchestral arrangements getting written, which can sometimes take anywhere from a week to you know a month, depending on how much needed to, to happen to to prepare to prepare it for some of the really big long pieces that he sent to us. Um, he's still coming up with ideas on his own in the studio every day before the orchestral arrangement is done. And so, you know, what, once he, he might get to a point there and decide, well, no, I'm really happy with this and maybe I don't feel like it needs an orchestral arrangement anymore. And so I think that, you know, it was more something like that that unfolded where, um, you know, it was just, okay, well, so I like it, but I'm, I'm going to go without it. It didn't happen that often, you know, but, but I think, actually, I, I can't remember anything except for, well, I can give you two examples. One was, I talked about it at the celebration yesterday, there was a tune called I Wonder You from the Parade album. Right. It was originally supposed to be a full orchestral arrangement. Two days before the session, when the orchestra is already hired and the arrangement is finished and being copied, um, which, by the way, music copying, what that means, for those who don't know, is, is you know, the score contains a handwritten record of what every single instrument is supposed to be played, all in one place. Whereas the copyist takes all that information from the score and boils down to just putting the parts for one instrument on one page or on a series of pages so that that's what goes in front of the individual musicians. So in other words, the orchestral score contains everything that the string players, the woodwind players, the brass players are supposed to be playing. And that's the part that you have in front of you. Yeah, okay. exactly. As a conductor, that's the part that I'm looking at. Right. And then, uh, and then the copyist will take that score and make individual parts. And so that's, you know, the individual parts are what go in front of the clarinet player or the viola player or the, you know, the, right. any one of the orchestral musicians. So, um, so while that's getting copied, we get a note from Prince saying, you know, he'd just like to have a family of flutes on the arrangement. So very quickly, my dad, you know, already having the song in his head, it was very easy to, you know, to get a second arrangement going. Uh, and, so, and so he did that. He wrote a completely second arrangement, not even thinking about the first arrangement, just, you know, just starting from scratch, but knowing the song very well. Um, than uh, writing this arrangement for a family of flutes. And we, so we recorded both of them and we sent them to Prince. And of course he stuck with his decision to use the flute arrangement. Right. But the, the orchestral arrangement leaked out. You <laughs> the know, whole time you're talking, I can hear it in my head. And yeah. So many people have come up to me and talked to me about that. And then um, also we had uh, a song that, that has not been released to date yet. I'm hoping at one point it will be because I know Prince was always going back and, and listening to old songs and figuring out how can I sequence this into a new album because you know I mean most of it is timeless music so it's uh, yes you can define some of it as being you know very 80s sounding or very 90s sounding but a lot of it has elements in it that you know are just as relevant today and, and will be for decades into the future, if not centuries. So, uh, so this is you know this is timeless stuff here that he would go back and revisit. And I I feel that um, this song that he did, which we tracked orchestra for him, I think around '88 or '89, called "All My Dreams," 
I feel that that would have been eventually released and I would love to see it released because it's a masterpiece it's a huge opus you know it's just like this it's eight or nine minutes long we used a full orchestra on it. it I did a lot of percussion work on that you know I play I played symphonic percussion and all the you know for all the orchestra parts anytime you needed a timpanist or marimba or vibraphone parts or anything that was all me um, and so uh, you know that that's one that I would really like to see not only re released, but I would love to be one of the people who is consulted about the mix as they're proceeding with the mix. Or I'd be, I, I would love to be in on the mix session if I could, because I remember vividly, you know, all the, the points that my dad was making. And actually, one of the things that, that he and I both do as orchestral rangers is once we're done with a track, is we make a rough mix to show how the orchestra should be balanced to the artist, you know, to give them an idea, here's how we hear it being balanced. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that's something that's sent in, and whether they pay attention to that or not, that's fine. I know Prince always did, but he, he, he also wanted to deconstruct things and listen to, you know, the individual instruments track by track to understand what they were playing. I was so looking a lot at of fun for him. I was looking at all my dreams, and I can actually hear that in uh, my head. And for some reason, I was thinking that I guess there was a version that was was released during one of the um, one of the bootleg releases. I can't think of any the best term I can use for a crystal ball. It was kind of put in that mix, but I, I can hear the whole entire song in my head now because I've heard that song so many times. Well, I which is which, which is uh, which is amazing to me because. That song was so well known in the Prince community, and, yeah. and because everybody knows that song, and it is fantastic. Well, I believe it was supposed uh, to be uh, part of the what would have been the three-album set that the record company wouldn't let him release, which ended up being two-album set, Sign of the Times, but originally it was supposed to be a three-album set with Crystal Ball included with all the other material from Sign of the Times, and I believe... All My Dreams was supposed to be in there as well. So they they did sample the song from what uh, they say on Prince Vault. They did sample it for, uh, for the song Acknowledge Me. Okay. Uh, that was, which was on Crystal Ball. But uh, outside of that, yeah, it was supposed to be, I guess, on the, the album um, uh, Dream. Okay. I mean, Dream Factory, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, it's, that's... That's a fantastic song. I think that's one of those historic songs that is just like, yeah, well, I don't understand why that just didn't get released. But uh, well, I think he was just waiting for the right time and the right collection of songs to pair it with, you right? Know? And eventually that would have come out. I mean, I'm I'm doing the same thing right now with uh, finishing up my father's career. I mean, we made a you know we made a plan going back 20 years ago. That, that's what I was going to ask you about yeah. because all these songs that Prince had in the vault, that all these songs that he put together, and my question is not Prince related, right. has to do with your father because I know just like Prince, your, your father had so many of those fantastic works that either maybe got put onto the cutting room floor, but they were fantastic songs and they didn't maybe just fit into the, the element of what he was doing. And so my question to you is, you know, how many songs do you think that your father has uh, or that you, your person that worked on that may be in Claire's vault? Right. That you are actually, are, are, are you... Are you putting together songs based on works that is just written on paper? 
or do are you actually pulling songs out of you know something that was already recorded you know many many years ago and reproducing it but is there an album that's coming out that's going to be like a collective work of your father's that is very similar to like a vault type of release right yeah I, I, it's it's a little bit different in this respect because um, you know I think I think the only reason why some of his songs didn't get recorded during his lifetime was that he just was busy we were both busy there was a there was a lot of activity all the time and um, you know you just can't keep track of everything <laughs> after a while there's just right. so much material as, as a matter of fact there's there's uh, one thing for his uh, his vocal group that uh, he wrote way back in the early 90s and for whatever reason it was just left off of albums that we made in the 90s and I finally realized that when we were doing some uh, you know albums later on and and so the uh, the release that we had in 2011, which was still during his lifetime, so I was very happy I was able to get that done and have it be released during his lifetime. Um, he passed away in 2012, and um, and so that you know that album was was uh, containing that that music, and I actually went back and I found some other songs that he had recorded in the 70s. And as, as a matter of fact, there was one that... Uh, is that All in the Family, that album you're referring to? What, what, which album are you referring to, uh, the 2011 album? Oh, okay, that was called And Sometimes Instruments, because okay. it's mostly, it's mostly uh, his jazz vocal arrangements, and uh, some of it is a cappella, but uh, most of it is, or, or you know, a, a large part of it is also voices and instruments and so it's called and sometimes instruments and there's a, even one tune on there that was you know talk about timeless material it was it was written by his mother my grandmother in the 1930s oh my gosh. then it was arranged by my dad for his group in the 1970s never went on to an album I, I discovered the 24 track tape I remembered hearing the song from my childhood and I said, we got to put this out on this album. And so then I took the arrangement. Uh, and, and it was really another like stroke of luck that actually the, the bass track on there, while the bass player was very good, it was just one of those tubby old electric, you know, the, the beginning days of electric bass, and it just had this tubby sound. It just yeah. didn't work out right. So I, I got to um, retract the bass part. Once we transferred the, you know, the 24-track tape over to Pro Tools, I got to retract the bass part. And you know, I was the same age uh, when I tracked that bass part as my father was when he tracked the piano part in the '70s. <laughs> At that point, when I, you know, I was tracking the bass part in uh, 2010, and so that was just a great experience to be able to release that song finally in 2011. That was, you know, written in the 1930s and originally arranged in the 1970s, and then 40 years later, finally released to the public. And so, so a large part of that was, you know, my dad and I sitting down kind of all through the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s, making plans to, to make sure that everything that he ever wrote would get released. And so we did a lot of recording towards the end of his life. And, uh, and, and little by little, I have been releasing that, starting in 2011 when he was still alive, but then the first album we released um, after his passing which was called ritmo, which means rhythm in in Spanish, and it is, uh, and also concurrently in Portuguese too. So that worked out well because the album has mostly Latin jazz of Afro-Cuban nature, but there is also some Brazilian Latin jazz on there as well. And I why did you decide to record that album live? 
Uh, well, no, that wasn't a live album. Well, there was clapping on it. Cause oh, 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 yeah, there was one live track. There was the, one okay, live track. That's what I, because I, I remember listening to the album and, and I was loving it. And then there was this one track, it ended with applause. And I was like, is this whole album being <laughs> recorded live? Because I was listen, also listening to the volume levels of all the different songs. And yeah. I was like, they're all similar. So well, we tried to mix it that way. Well. Yeah, we, he did a very good job because it's like, is this whole thing live? So well, it was just that one track. Just, just that one track. Okay. So well, see, yeah, that's that's the that's the benefit from ordering an album from ClaireFisher.com. You get a <laughs> even when you even when you get the uh, the MP3 version, right. you get a PDF with all the liner notes, with all the credits in there, and everything on there. Um, the, you know, there's this big movement with the Recording Academy right now to try and get everybody who sends out music to the public to make the credits available so that all these fantastic musicians who worked with Prince and Claire Fisher and mm -hmm. myself uh, and all these other uh, people so, so, that, so that the public can know who did this amazing right. work here. Yeah, it's and, a lot of work. It's yeah. a lot of work. I mean, even for a radio station, like an even online radio station like Zeppelin, you know, to be able to have access to the information, you can say, Man, that bass part in that song is amazing. Who did who that? Did and that? be able yeah. just to be able to click away and find out, you know, who who is who are all the players on this? Right. And, and I don't want to I don't want to derail what you were talking about as far as well. Actually, let's finish this. Let's finish. Yeah, this, sure. Let's, so let's finish this part about how how many albums away do you think you are at, at completing your father's work? Right. Right. So we we released uh, that one album in 2012. It won a Grammy in 2013. That was and that was the first time my dad had been nominated in I don't know 15 or so years. How many Grammys does he have? So uh, he got uh, one during his lifetime. That was the first one that I worked on in 1980. Okay. <laughs> so he got that one in 1981. So that was for you know the same Latin jazz group that eventually morphed into this Latin jazz big band, which was the album that won a Grammy in 2013. And uh, but then besides that, I mean, he had uh, 13 other nominations for various fantastic, arrangements or performances so, uh, over the decades. And then uh, he won another Grammy posthumously, and that was my first Grammy, the, the Grammy that we both got for this album in 2013. And then uh, he won a third, you know, a second posthumous third cumulative um, Grammy for uh, Best Instrumental Composition in 2014, and that was an orchestral album that I put out in 2013. So it was just the Claire Fisher Orchestra. There were some pieces of mine on there. You know, he always wanted me to contribute. Rainforest to, as well. Uh, oh, no, that's Ra Rainforest is off the uh, Latin Jazz Big Band album. Right, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, the, the album that we, we released in, the, uh, in, in 2013 was a lot of his orchestral compositions, purely orchestral music. And these were gotcha. things that were, you know, sort of inspired by not only his love of, uh, you know, all the orchestral composers. I mean, you know, a big part of Claire Fisher and, and uh, by association, my um, writing, the content of my writing is not just, you know, influence from jazz or influence from pop or rock music. It's going way back in history to, you know, J.S. Bach from the 17th century, the, the, the work that he did. And then all the classical composers that came after him, right on down to the 20th century orchestral composers, uh, Bartok, Shostakovich, Stravinsky, all these mm. guys. So, so there's a there's a, a, a you know a, 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 a let's say an admiration or an 
honoring of history so that so that what I like to present, even when I'm doing, you know, a funky arrangement for D'Angelo, is still we're getting that history. There's a polyphony from J.S. Bach. There's the unusual harmonic vocabulary from somebody like Stravinsky. And then mm -hmm. there's the, the jazz influences from somebody like Duke Ellington. And then there are all the pop influences that I've had throughout my life, including all the work that I do with Prince, which led me to the work that I was doing for D'Angelo and, and Questlove and Sheila E. Um, so all those things are melded together in, in the work that we do. But so, so that, that orchestral album that was released in, uh, in 2013, um, he won a, a Grammy for best instrumental composition. And that was an orchestral work, purely orchestral work, that was really interesting, um, the way it was all laid out, because it was definitely a classical album. You know, it was classical in nature. There were some light jazz references, uh, some maybe traditional pop references in, in the album, but, but for the most part, it was something like you would hear in a symphonic concert hall. However, the reaction from, uh, from the classical world was it contains too many jazz elements. So it's amazing, even as this album was winning a Grammy, I could not get a classical radio <laughs> promo firm to pick up the album and pitch it to classical radio stations. So it did not get its due on classical radio stations, but uh, it did win a Grammy and it has been well received by critics. So it's was, it was just amazing. So that's, that's why I always say to people who really just like one style of music, check out you know if you don't like this other style of music and it doesn't matter what that style is but if you don't like that other style of music yet you just haven't found a really good artist yet or, right. or you know an artist that speaks to you so keep looking because you'll find something there's eventually so, there's so much out there so I, much I can't, great music. yeah yeah I, the people that just you know only listen to country or only listen to you know hard rock or only say you just you're you're shutting yourself off it makes no sense at all it's yeah so much out there and so i mean much a big, variety a big part of what just, i did you know over over the years was also working with uh working with musicians and artists from countries all over the world i mean it, it started out getting interested in latin jazz so that was sort of the you know the cuban and brazilian part but then it mm -hmm. it just morphed out into well, and we worked for a lot of Japanese artists over the years, um, but then it just morphed into working with all these different artists from, you know, people who were, were like the prince of their, or the Michael Jackson of their country, and uh, to be able to learn about that style of music and basically be, you know, um, develop a reputation over the years as, you know, the, whatever the, the, you know, the, either the white guy who didn't sound like a white guy or the American guy who didn't necessarily sound American in the music that he was writing because I was taking into consideration that these people are looking at their music from a completely different standpoint. You need to unlearn what you know as an American musician and, and relearn how these people, uh, you know, relate to music. And, and it's the same thing, like, I, I, I cannot speak a foreign language without having an American accent. You know, I can get by in many countries around the world and you just learn words, maybe not sentences, but I can, right. I can get by, you know, when I travel around the world. Uh, but, it, but it's always, you know, pronounced with a thick American accent. You can, you can, you know where the bathroom is, you can get something to eat. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I can, yeah, I can get more, directions. more towels sent to my hotel room or whatever, or, or, or even work with an artist, you know, and, and just 
But, uh, you know, so I can, I can get by in foreign languages, but it's always with a thick American accent. But that's not the case for my music. When I'm doing music, either as a player or as a writer, I have a deep, uh, or I like to think of myself as, as, as having spent a great deal of time studying the music of that country or the music of that region or the you know, music of that, of that style so that I can effectively participate in the creation of new music for that culture. And so that's been, you know, that's been a, a great experience for me in my lifetime. And part of it is, is uh, you know, all the, all the different things that my dad did and getting his career finished out. So we have released an album a year since he passed away for the past five years. I'm pretty exhausted from this, so I took a break from it for the last year. Probably going to rest for another year or so, and then I'm going to be tackling some more Claire Fisher songs. And one, you know, one of the goals is just everything that he recorded in his lifetime to get released. That's one thing. So you can hear Claire Fisher playing piano. Um, the other thing is any of compositions that he had that don't necessarily feature him on an instrument, but were just written for another ensemble. I can record those anytime. So I've got, I've got plans to do that coming up. And, and then there's also, you know, taking great old Claire Fisher songs from the past or, or artists that we both liked and enjoyed listening to during his lifetime and arranging those songs for, uh, you know, the Claire Fisher big band, for instance. And, uh, and so, so I've been doing a little bit of that. So I, you know, there, there can be a whole music of Claire Fisher series. Another thing that I'd really like to do would be to, uh, you know, take these uh, orchestral arrangements my dad did for Prince in the early days and give them a new treatment with, you know, guest artists who are also interested in the music of Prince over the years right. and, uh, and make, you know, an, a new, like, uh, music of series featuring these, you know, this, this great work that were done but uh, you know, in a, in a new setting, I, I always like when I when I do an arrangement of something that's already been covered, and maybe it's been covered by a lot of people over the years. I like to listen to what they've done and then do something completely different, but still pay attention to the absolute fundamentals of the song. In other words, I'm not going to rewrite the song. I'm going to still present the song so you can recognize it as being, you know, this is where it comes from. I still recognize the chord progression. There may be some other things added in here. There may be a twist on something. Maybe the groove is different or, um, you know, even the, even the, you know, metric considerations for the, for the, the rhythm. But, uh, but it's still going to be recognizable. Uh, but how, how can I do this in a creative and clever way, still paying tribute to the original? but now presenting it in a new light for people to you know, embrace this new version. Which brings me to a question about um, Prince in general. I've seen a few variations of symphony orchestrations of, I don't know if they've redundant, of uh, Prince material. And we've seen, we saw the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra um, get presented with some I guess orchestrations of, of his stuff, and they, you know, some somebody like Marshall Charloff, who was an, an amazing Prince uh, uh, impersonator. Um, and have you ever considered writing or even utilizing writings you've already done? Yeah. To put together a symphony 
uh, a Prince Symphony that's actually would be something that would actually be ordained by Paisley Park. I think there's one that's out there that is ordained by Paisley Park, but it's not. I really don't think that it's worthy of you know an arrangement that would be put together by somebody like yourself. Right. So is there is is anything on the radar? Oh yeah. That, uh, is, yeah, I mean, we 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 were talking about stuff like this even during my father's lifetime. You know, he he wanted to release an album one day, which would be a collection of all of his favorite songs that he arranged for Prince, but with the orchestra mixed forward, so you could really pay attention to what the orchestra was doing. And so, it, it, you know, in a sense, it's not it's not a uh, it's it's not to take attention away from all this amazing stuff that Prince did but there is a there is a version of that out there already that you can listen to and this would be one so that you could really uh, delve into what the orchestra was doing some things that maybe get um, you know if, if they're a little bit further in the background during you know whatever's going on with Prince's band you don't quite get the full impact of it because you know it's a it's a it's a huge balancing act you got all the tracks that Prince put together and you had all the tracks that the orchestra has you have to you have to figure out all the levels of where everything is going to go, and uh, and so this would be a different way of paying attention to something. But I you know I have had offers from orchestras in the past, different symphony orchestras around the world, to do a program of you know all these all these arrangements that I still have the scores for mm -hmm. that either my father or later on myself did for Prince, and then pair this up with some guest artists. Who would then, you know, perform the the vocals and the band part while I was conducting the orchestra, and so that's something that uh, that that's uh, already happened. No, oh, okay. it's it's been talked about, but nobody's quite gotten around to doing it yet. Anybody's to do that? It's you guys. Yeah, because you've already done it. Most right. of the, most of the scores are already written. It's already there. Yeah. So it just makes the most sense that you and your father would be the ones that would be. Well, I I've mean, got yeah, I've got it all ready to go. It's just a question of putting together the logistics. Who is sleeping on this? And the rights, you know, it's a question of the rights ownership and all that stuff. So we, you know, it have to be done in uh, in in a in the right in a you know a professional manner. So that it was first of all, so that it was done well. It was done with everybody's blessing, and then um, you know I would feel comfortable with with presenting this to the public. And have you seen any of the other ones that that? There's been a couple that I've seen that are, are actually are going to be. I think there's one that's going to be here in town, and a few that are in Atlanta. Have you seen any other symphony? Uh, no, I, I've tributes? no. I've heard about people just doing their own thing, where they just would make their own arrangements and then you know uh, present it as a new you know a new set of arrangements. Of but it just seems work. like they would have utilized most of what you had already done. Because if you hear a song and you know, like for instance, like I wonder you, there's only certain, there's there's only one way to do that song, and that's the way that you already did it. So how do those rights work out? Where you've got a symphony that is doing these oh, well, projections? You know, after the first release of a song, anybody can cover it, right? There's no restriction against anybody covering. So anybody can go out and do whatever they want. And I think it's a great thing that people are. You know, interested in doing that, and they have their own spin on things. But, but yeah, this is what I would be talking about: would be putting the original collaboration 
together in a new light of some, oh, you know, some form. But, <laughs> but again, it's, it's so you know, like that. paying respect to everything that happened before while presenting something in, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a fashion that would be relevant for today's audience. Because what I want to do is see um, not only you know, the music of Prince and Claire Fisher live on, but all these other great artists mm -hmm. to make sure that they're still remembered that uh, you know that that when we when we have uh, you know Prince celebration in 2038, that there are going to be um, you know a lot of younger people attending, people mm -hmm. people who weren't around for any of this stuff, and they just you know they grew up and discovered Prince or Claire Fisher or you know Earth Wind and Fire or any of these other great groups, and they just kind of discovered it. And now they're listening to it in the 2030s, right, and, yeah. and you know they're keeping this music alive because right. this is this is all history. You know, this is this this is amazing stuff that happened, and I'm just happy to have played a small part in it um, in my lifetime, and to be able to continue to do that. So, what is the project of yours that you are the most proud of, but maybe that you feel? Was it? I think you may have referred to referred to one of them, but I don't know if that's the most the one that you're the most proud of that you feel like was was either ignored or the public just totally missed the boat on. Um, you're talking about as it relates to Prince. As relates no, as it relates to your work. Oh well, there's yeah. probably a lot of them, I imagine, because it's you, you're you're kind of in one of those weird genres where the people that are actually actively listening to it know all about and and are are there to boost you up and right. and and to you know support you but you kind of feel like if this people would you please listen to this <laughs> this is really fantastic i worked very very hard on this and it just drives me crazy that it's just gone it's well, been overlooked yeah i mean i'm i'm fortunate to say that that i there are none of those albums that that are that are actually driving me crazy because they've been uh, they've been critically acclaimed, so so. Um, you have a great track record. So that's the other thing too. Yeah. <laughs> you have a pretty fantastic track record. Thank so. you. Yeah. So so in in that respect, I'm very happy about it. But yeah, as far as people, you know, discovering the music of Claire Fisher and also the, you know, I, I'm not the same type of composer as he was. He wrote 140 songs during his lifetime. Now three of them have become kind of Latin jazz standards. But I feel they have implications far beyond just the Latin jazz genre, and um, and and so you know I'm interested to see what happens with that in the future. But um, so so he has written all these songs. I've only released about oh I think maybe 15 or 20 original compositions of mine so far. I don't I don't have this plan to actually be a songwriter per se. When, when something comes up and I have an idea, I'll write an original song. Uh, but but I'm, I'm happier uh, producing and arranging and, and taking the work of other people and seeing what I can do with it mm -hmm. and having that challenge. And, and, and one of the great things is seeing what I can do with my father's music over the years. So yeah, any of the albums, any of the Claire Fisher albums that have been released in the last, uh, let's say, 10 years that um, that are really you know kind of the culmination of his life's work and the culmination of our time together 32 years spent working together not just as father and son but as you know as partners 
And while it may have started out when I was 15 as kind of just being the bass player in the group, just you know, sit in the back and play right. my part, or assisting him, you know, writing uh, writing arrangements in the in, in the first part of his career, then it became you know this this um, wonderful partnership later on, and then towards the end of his life, it became something where I could keep his career going even as he needed to slow down just for his health you know to to not have to stay up all night writing something for a deadline as a matter of fact we had a great rhythm worked out uh and when i say rhythm i don't mean a beat or something i'm talking about a working relationship Mm -hmm. whereby he would write music if we had an arrangement that was due and we had a tight deadline he would write on it all day and drop the pencil now remember during his lifetime we were always writing with pencil on the score paper. It was only you right. know, the, the first arrangement where I finally decided to jump into computer music notation and write everything at a computer. Still, you know, working out my ideas at the piano, but notating it on the computer. That was uh, for D'Angelo's Really Love. That's so that's that score I actually have, you know, a PDF of, which is <laughs> which is inter- you know interesting thing because all the other Claire Fisher scores and Brent Fisher scores from the past are uh, you know something that have to be they're all handwritten so they all have to be scanned and uh, and and so you know when uh, when a uh, you know when when uh, we publish the music it's something where you can order the music um, the written music through the mail and or or if something is short enough you know I I can sure I can have my assistant scan it in and and make a PDF of it but but uh, until that's all digitized at some point you know far in the future once we once we get around to digitizing all the all the handwritten notes um, it's uh, it's something but but you know and I think there's 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 a there's a beautiful thing about looking at a handwritten score Mm -hmm. and and to have that you know to have that piece of of somebody's you know creative output that is not like it's not the same as um, you know when you when you look at something that's been printed up by a computer. Oh, yeah, so so that fair. that's something completely different. But but anyway, all this all this uh, work that we did, you know, during my father's lifetime and spent all that time working together, we developed this rhythm um, to the last I don't know 10, 15 years of his life, where he would start writing something in the morning and go all day and when he was tired at the end of the day he, he could just put down the pencil on the score pad even in the middle of a phrase it didn't matter and just go to bed and then I would come over at night and I would pick up where he left off right in the middle of the phrase and continue writing all night and then when I was tired and I couldn't keep my eyes open in the morning I would put the pencil down right in the middle of a phrase he would wake up have breakfast and pick up where I left off and so we would just keep doing that, you know, throughout this whole, <clears throat> throughout this whole time. That's the way. Uh, that's the way we wrote the orchestral arrangement for the Prince and Beyonce medley at uh, the Grammy 2004 telecast. Um, that's the way we did uh, did an entire album for um, Kirk Franklin that way, and uh, then um, all the recordings that Prince produced for. Um, Tamar and uh, Bria Valente. After, mm-hmm. Actually, I, I wrote I wrote quite a few of those on my own. There, there, you know, there came a point finally where he was like, "Here, you just take this one." But I always had him in the room. You know, towards the end of his life, I was because I did this in the jazz world too. Mm-hmm. There were times when he would get a commission, and he was like, "You know, let, 
let me just hand this off to you and and um, you, we'll send it in and, and you know I feel comfortable doing that but I always he was always in the room you know we had uh, we had a bed for him to lay down during the last year of his in his life and this bed was in the music room so and there's a large room so we could uh, you know we could rehearse his big band in there and so even you know up to um, you know the, the last few weeks of his life I could have his bands rehearse with him in the room so he could hear his music even up to the very end of his life hear his music mm. being performed and uh, and enjoy it and then also he could sit there or, or lie there in bed and um, and listen to me composing at the piano and, you know and sometimes I think uh, you know I, I would think he was asleep because his eyes were closed and you know I'd hear him breathing deeply and so I'd be working through a chord progression for an arrangement and I, you know I'd come up with some ideas or I'd work out a melodic figure and I'd get to the end of it and all of a sudden you know he'd say oh yes or some, you know, I have these clear <laughs> memories of him doing something, and I thought he was asleep, and you know, I was just doing this on my own, but he was still listening, right. and and so this was just this you know phenomenal experience that I had with him. Besides, you know, having just the whole uh, very very loving father son relationship that we had all throughout our, our lives, you know, occasionally butting heads when I was a teenager and, you know, a young adult and stuff, just like fathers and sons do. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but, but for the most part, you know, just this very mutually respect, uh, respectful working relationship and, uh, you know, fun traveling together when we were going and, you know, gigging at jazz festivals overseas. All these, you know, great experiences. It, it was, you know, this experience of writing music together, and then being able to um, carry on his traditions. A lot of this stuff that, you know, specific orchestral writing techniques that I found him using, but I really don't see a lot of other composers using, or uh, you know, a harmonic vocabulary mm -hmm. that I just don't see a lot of other people using. You know, I mean, think about the thing that I like to compare it to. Um, is, is think about when you read uh, a wonderful book by a gifted author and um, yeah don't it's okay so so think about when you uh, you are, are reading a, a, a wonderful book by a gifted author and you get really drawn into the book it doesn't matter whether it's fiction or nonfiction just w the way the writer is putting together the words and, uh, and, and, you know, occasionally using a vocabulary term that you, you like, okay, I kind of think, I think I remember what that means from my high school vo vocabulary class, but let me look it up in a dictionary just to, you know, get the mm -hmm. full gist of what he's saying. And once you read that definition of this very, you know, uh, uh, either complex or, or little used word, you realize that th that was the perfect way to construct that sentence to convey this very deep or subtle meaning that this author is trying to convey. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful thing. And so I likened, you know, to what I got from my father as the same thing. Here is this amazing harmonic vocabulary that a lot of people aren't even aware of some, you know, some of these um, chords that he came up with. And, uh, and, and, and some of them actually can't even hear it. They need to develop their hearing to be able to fully understand right. the depth of what he's created there. And, uh, and, and fortunately, I was in a position to be able to do that. Not only was I with him during all those sessions, and you know, just like 
I never actually took lessons from him, but there was just this organic thing that happened all throughout our lives. We'd be working on a session and he would be, you know, he'd start talking about what he wrote for the clarinet player or what he wrote for the strings and explain to me the devices and how they manifest themselves and what other writers have done with these devices in the past and, you know, how he uses it differently. And so to be able to, to grasp all that stuff because of my upbringing mm -hmm. and to not have a problem understanding, you know, a lot of, a lot of times I'll get uh, students coming to me who have gone through a, you know, an educational system where, of course, everybody needs to learn the building blocks of music to be able to understand what's going on in, you know, in, uh, in sonic architecture. But um, they can be constricting also because they set up rules and then you think, well, that's the framework I have to follow. But music is this, you know, amazingly flexible, creative medium to where, no, you don't necessarily need to. Uh, if you've got an interesting way to present something, and it breaks some sort of a rule from a music theory notebook. As long as you prevent, you know, as long as you have presented it in a convincing and logical fashion, that's fine. You know, it makes sense. And and uh, and so that's been my goal is to do that and to carry on all these works and carry on these concepts and also to pass them on to other people through my educational work, either doing uh, lectures and seminars at universities or you know for general public or through um, private instruction. So one of the things I want to definitely close with as sure. we get to the end here is um, you mentioned the Grammys. And some people know the story, some people don't, about the fact that Prince never met your father. Right. Which is unbelievable to me. Yeah. Because their relationship <laughs> was 20-something years yep. of, of working together. And the two have, the two have just. You mentioned the Grammys because I think you you mentioned this at the celebration that that your father was walking up a ramp, and there's Prince. So right. I guess let's we'll we'll close with that classic story okay. of of how uh, how many times have you met Prince? I guess that's the first. Just the one time. Just the one time. Yeah. Just the one time. Yeah. Um, so. You've met Prince and and got to perform on stage with him, right? That was <laughs> that was another big plus about being in the orchestra at that point. Not only was I writing for the orchestra along with my father, but but uh, I got to play percussion in the orchestra. So it was like you know I I was one of the, the the few musicians actually who was not directly hired by Prince, right? I was I was the one who was actually hiring the, the entire orchestra <laughs> myself so on his behalf. So let's talk about Prince's sure. superstition about about uh, about your father, and then um, also I guess that final moment. You know, they the almost time, where, where they almost, almost met. Yeah, so. So we were there at the Grammys, and uh, so we needed to go over logistics here at the at the sound check. You know, the day before the Grammys, because all all they gave us was a half hour for sound check, and then we'd have a five minute dress rehearsal the next morning, and then boom, that's it. You are you know on live TV in front of what forty million people that mm -hmm. time or something. So uh, so you know, Prince's assistant takes me up to Prince and introduces me to him. I shook his hand. I, you know, I looked him in the eye and I said, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been, what an honor it's been to, uh, to work for you all these decades. And he was like, thank you so much. And then we just got straight down to business, which is, you know, which is how it should be. I mean, it was the same thing right, you know, when yeah. I met Michael Jackson, with, you know, great admirer of your work. Now, let's get down to business. And, and so and you proceed with the meeting. And so we went through the logistics 
of you know what we we're going to do and how it was going to unfold make sure we we're on the same page with everything and then at the end he said so i heard i heard the old man is here today and uh i, I still don't want to meet him you know i, I don't want to jinx the working relationship it's, it's just been going so well all this time um but you know please please send him my best and uh, and so i did that and uh, you know i went and talked to my dad and i said you know so um, we'll, you know, we'll just enjoy the performance. <laughs> and so he sat in the, uh, in the green room with Steve Perry and uh, Steph, Steve Tyler and Joe Perry. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so my, my dad was just, yeah, sitting in the green room with Joe Perry and Steve Tyler, uh, watching us perform on stage for this, you know, Grand Prince Beyonce medley, which, which by the way, was fantastic to, you know, to finally get a chance because we met... We met Prince after Purple Rain, so and the medley opened with Purple Rain. So to finally get a chance to write an orchestral arrangement for Purple Rain, mm -hmm. after all these years, you know, of thinking we would never get a chance to do this because it had already been released. That was a fantastic experience, another fantastic experience, mm -hmm. and uh, and so we did the performance, and um, but you know on the way to the stage, I was getting ready to go on stage, and my dad said, "Well, I just I just want to see the stage." And so I was walking behind my dad as we were going he up. He really this, wanted to see the stage, or would he? We just wanted think? to see what everything was was doing, and you know. <laughs> you um, think well, maybe I'll maybe I'll I'll meet friends. Um, no, I think he was. You know, he really wanted to see the stage. He he was <laughs> uh, he was understanding. No, I think he just wanted to see the setup. He wanted to see where the orchestra was and how mm -hmm. you know how everybody was laid out and to make sure. Everybody, I, th I think the most important thing to him was that everybody had the music in front of them and they were ready to go and. You know, right. and everything would proceed according to plan. I think that was the most important thing. But uh, so he he wasn't that steady on his feet, r walking up this ramp at you know seventy eight years of age. So I was walking behind him in case I needed to grab him, um, and, uh, and and so I was watching his footsteps at first, walking up behind him on this ramp to get up to the stage area. And once I was sure that he was um, that he was on his feet, okay, and, and walking without any problem. I looked up all of a sudden. When I looked up towards his head and his back, I noticed that standing just to his left, basically a foot from his shoulder, was Prince also walking up. And they were kind of walking, both walking up, very nice and relaxed, you know, very slowly. Prince, Prince with his him. guitar on. No, because remember, he never knew he what. He already met you, though. He had he met saw me. You walking, walking. Yeah, but I, I look completely different. Him. I know. No, remember, he was in front of me. I was oh, okay. behind the two of them. I don't think right. he knew I was there. I don't think. I'm not sure. Or if he did, it may, you know, he never he said, said anything. I find, I, I've seen him now. I, maybe. Maybe Prince, maybe Prince said, I, there's Brent. I know that his. I know that his father's here. Yeah, but and remember, he's up I, and they kind of look a little similar. Kind of look a little bit. They have the same features, maybe. No, so I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure about that because see, here's the thing. I met him the day before, and we talked for all of three minutes, and that was the only right. time he had ever seen me in his life. Now I thought it was really nice of him to. I didn't realize at the time his personal photographer, Afshin Shahidi, was hiding somewhere, which I didn't know about, and taking photographs of us. And, and you know, a couple of weeks after the Grammys, Prince sent me a photo of the two of us together framed in the mail. And I thought, I thought that was a wonderful gesture. Uh, but so he had just seen me the day before, and now here we were, you know, he's been talking to 
59 people since then about you know all these logistical things he had to do for everything else and probably giving interviews and dealing with the Grammy production staff all that stuff so I'm not sure he would have recognized me again or if he did you know necessarily put two and two together because there were all sorts of other old men around there there's the, you know, the stage crew there are plenty of gray-haired old men uh, you know looking similar to me and remember my father doesn't really look that much like me yes we have similar facial features but he was built like a football player whereas i got my mom's thin body type and and <laughs> so you assisting him so yeah well but they were both looking ahead they were both looking straight ahead me just wants to think that because you know this 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 ramp is hard to climb. It's a steep ramp. Yeah, so you know, so they're both walking up kind of slowly, side by side, and my initial instinct is, well, you guys should meet, Dad. This is Prince. Prince. This is Claire Fisher. And I knew he didn't know what my dad looked like because he had told us, you know, decades earlier. I have this image of what Claire Fisher looks like in my head, and I don't want to change that. So don't show me a picture of him. Hmm. And. Um, and so I knew he didn't know that. And my dad, I knew, was just concentrating on getting up the ramp at 78 years of age and looking towards, you know, he was headed towards the part of the stage where the string players were. Prince was headed to the opposite side, the far left side of the stage, where he was setting up with Beyonce. Mm. So, um, so they were, yeah, they were side by side walking up that ramp. And I just pulled myself back from my natural instinct to introduce them and decided to respect Prince's wishes and so I did not and that's the closest they ever came so they were in the same room together I wonder if Action has a photo of the two of them standing right next to each other and he just didn't realize the significance of that photo and maybe it's just sitting off in his because yeah. he captured photo of you two, so I yeah, just... and, and you know, I mean, uh, I mean, there was, you know, there was an instruction uh, by Prince when I was putting the orchestra together that he wanted to make sure that he he would un he would understand if we would need, you know, a few of our key players were, you know, like older men, mm -hmm. but he would like it if we could find really great musicians that just happen to be really good-looking women at the same time to play in the orchestra. <laughs> and fortunately, Los Angeles has enough players that we were able to do that. And so sure. the majority of the orchestra was, you know, young, good-looking women. And uh, we had a few old guys. But so, so there were other old men around, yeah. you know, um, and, and then, you know, a couple of middle-aged guys like me. And, and uh, you know, I made sure there was, you know, the one, one guy that I really needed in this one part of the orchestra. I made sure I got a good guy, you know, good-looking guy to, you know, perform in that section too, and and, right. and, and so, uh, so that was, you know, that was another part, and I understand that whole thing, aesthetics, and you know, the the entire aesthetic package is very important, mm -hmm. but that's the way that whole thing unfolded, and so they they never actually met on that day, and there was no meeting any time after that. That's the only time I have met Prince in my lifetime, and it was that's why it was just amazing to be here for the celebration to today uh, and yesterday and see Paisley Park Studios for the first time. Yeah, you mentioned that was the first time. Yeah. Well, I can tell you one meeting that I am glad that I have, and that was a meeting of meeting, the honor of meeting you, and thank you so much for all the time. And uh, Thank you, and Chris. Thank you for your insights. Absolutely. It's been an honor. And uh, please be sure that you check out all of Brent's work. Uh, what's the best place that people can go to, to pick up your collect just any record stores that may still exist well or, or besides or, you know besides clairefisher.com and brentfisher.com which remember fisher has a c f i s c h e r 
So there's and, and Claire does not have an I. It's the right. Irish. It's the Irish masculine form of the name rather than the French feminine form. Right. C L A R E F I S C H E R dot com, and then there's Brentfisher dot com. Uh, we've we've got our you know social media pages. Um, there you know you can you can just type our name into YouTube, and a lot of things will pop up. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I would say that's that's the best place to start. And then we you know we both have our Wikipedia pages. And uh, all, all Claire Fisher music is available on uh, Amazon and iTunes and you know all those all those different outlets there and uh, and it's so it's it's an amazing collection this variety of you know Claire Fisher albums that span from the late fifties on up to you know the last album we released for the Claire Fisher Latin Jazz Big Band was in twenty sixteen so go and explore and enjoy absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. That's it, Funkatopians. Get out there and buy some albums. Talk to you guys later. <laughs>